Well, we're coming to the uh, end of our Minor Prophets series with the book of Malachi. A brief, a brief background of the book of Malachi. You remember uh, we, uh, JP spoke on Haggai last week. Haggai had called the people to rebuild the temple. It had been delayed because the people were slacking off and Haggai came and said, let's get this done. Well, now in the book of Malachi, it's about 100 years after the temple had been built and the people's enthusiasm had worn off. Um, Many of you who started a diet January 1st can relate. I don't know where you're at at this point, but uh, I recall last year we had purchased our home about a year ago and in May, Amy took a trip for a week and I thought, all right, I'm going to get some work done and surprise her when she gets back. Well, I, I just worked... I forget. It, it was crazy. It was too much. A lot of you helped me, uh, which was great. And I got to the end, and Amy walked in the door, and she saw it was done and was thrilled, and there were some projects left unfinished, and I was like, ah, I, you know, the, I was going for the surprise. So we have, a, we have a mantle that still needs to be grouted for a year. I haven't touched it. Uh, you know, you get to that point where your enthusiasm wears off. Well, that's uh, that's a rough thing when it's uh, our spiritual enthusiasm and our enthusiasm and our relationship with the Lord. So here we see in the book of Malachi that people were disobeying God in things he had clearly told them to do. And they were wondering why they weren't enjoying his blessing. So we're going to take a look uh, through the entire book. And it's, it is an overview, so we're just going to kind of touch down on stuff. I've also come to realize that there are some very intimate issues we're going to be discussing today and I I am fairly certain that most if not all of us are going to fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning about one or more issues things that we may need to straighten out with God Um, so um, I think these these issues particularly relate to our relationship with God first and foremost our love for God our obedience to God so I wanted to take a little different approach this morning. Here I thought I was going to be the one guy that didn't have to mess with this. We're just going to uh, go through the message for what it is. Seven ways to tell God I hate you. And I I present it somewhat humorously, and yet as we go through this, I think we'll see that there's nothing humorous about these issues and that there might be some ways we need to straighten out. Um, As such, let's commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Father, I pray that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me this morning, that these would not be my words or my thoughts or my personal convictions. I pray that you would flush those out and that, that if those get in the way that my brothers and sisters would call me out on it. Father, we need to dig into your word this morning and some of these very important things uh, that you talk, uh, talk to us about through your message in Malachi. And um, we just pray that your spirit would be in our hearts and minds, tilling the soil and, and softening up some perhaps very hard places uh, so that your word can be implanted and that we would be ready to accept it to acknowledge any areas that need to be corrected, to confess them to you, 
and to enjoy an unhindered relationship with you, Father. We ask for your help this morning in your son's name. Amen. Starting in, uh, in 1.1 is just the introduction, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Uh, by the way, uh, there's not a lot that's known about the prophet Malachi. The, the name Malachi means my messenger. So some have thought perhaps it was a generic designation for an unknown author. However, it's very possible that uh, the prophet's name was just Malachi and carried the, uh, a significant meaning to it. So this is the, uh, the words, uh, the oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Straight on into verse 2. It's sort, of, it's sort of like we're jumping in on a conversation that already started, but we missed the first, the first accusation uh, of Israel saying, God, you haven't loved us. And God starts in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau and have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, Edom were the, were the descendants of Esau, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we'll return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Israel had forgotten that they were God's chosen people. God says to them, if you don't remember, there was Jacob and there was Esau. I chose to love Jacob. And if you want to see what it looks like to not be loved, look at the Edomites. I don't love them. And they're never going to find success. They can build and I'll tear down. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to be called the wicked territory. He says uh, all this to say, I have chosen you. So don't forget that. You are my people that's been set apart, that I've chosen. How quickly we forget that sometimes, that we've been called, that we've been set apart. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 remind us of this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, have, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I know that that's a very practical thing. There's, maybe there's not a lot of emotion that bubbles up from that, thinking, oh, okay, well, I was chosen. But understand that you were chosen by God for salvation. And think about what it cost him not only to choose you, but to purchase you with the blood of his son. Uh, and as we think on those things and take some time to, to really think about what it costs God to choose us and to call us out, hopefully we can come, uh, uh, our heart can come to the same place that John's did in 1 John 4.16, 
when he's able to say, we have come to know and have believed the love of God, uh, the love which God has for us. The second method to, to tell God that we hate him is to cheat at worship. We'll read verses uh, 6 through 10 here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Wow, that's pretty rough. God just tells them like it is. Um, Let me read a, a short paragraph from Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. For years, I gave God leftovers and felt no shame. I simply took my eyes off scripture and instead compared myself to others. The bones I threw at God had more meat on them than the bones others threw, so I figured I was doing fine. It's easy to fill ourselves up with other things and then give God whatever is left. Hosea 13.6 says, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. God gets a scrap or two only because we feel guilty for giving him nothing. A mumbled three-minute prayer at the end of the day when we're already half asleep. Two crumpled up dollar bills thrown in as an afterthought into the church's fund for the poor. Fetch God. The priests of Malachi's day thought their sacrifices were sufficient. They had spotless animals, but chose to keep those for themselves and give their less desirable animals to God. They assumed God was pleased because they had sacrificed something. God described this practice as evil. Leftovers are not merely inadequate from God's point of view, unless we forget he's the only one who matters. They're evil. Let's stop calling it a busy schedule or bills or forgetfulness. It's called evil. God is holy. In heaven exists a being who decides whether or not I take another breath. This holy God deserves excellence, the very best I have. But something is better than nothing, some protest. Really? Is it? Does anyone enjoy token praise? I sure don't. I'd rather you not say anything than compliment me out of an obligation or guilt. Why would we think God is any different? Further on in Malachi, God says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire in my altar. I am not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. God wanted the temple gates shut. The weak sacrifices of the laid-back priests were an insult to him. He was saying that no worship is better than apathetic worship. I wonder how many church doors God wants to shut today. JP, uh, I was listening to his message on Haggai. And I think he was right on when he 
mentions that sometimes it's as if we're saying to God in the way that we worship, our comfort is more important than your presence. We desire this world, our luxuries, our homes, our comfort more than we desire your presence among us. Uh, In response to this, uh, I was uh, prompted to rewrite some praise songs that I think are a little more accurate apart from you. You might think you know this one, but here's a version we ought to be singing. I will do anything. I will say anything. I will face anything apart from you. I'm doing the Christian thing, and so I guess I'll sing, but I'll do anything apart from you. Lord, my leisure is the air that I breathe. Not a promise you've given compels me. There's so much on this earth that I need before I'll be with you. How about this one? Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name in the house that is plentiful, where the income of abundance flows. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name when I'm found in the marketplace, when I'm purchasing the gratuitous. Blessed be your name. Every felt need you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. But if the creditors start calling in, Lord, don't expect me to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now there's a certain element of humor to those. (laughs) Well, I think God's point is that we all do. Um, You know, some of us are offering our leftovers week after week after week. And we're okay with it. God's reminding us this morning that that is not okay. And it needs to stop. Method three is to show partiality in the way you teach God's word. Uh, Let's read verses uh, two, one and two, and then I'll skip down uh, to seven. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I've cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way You've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Now, I don't know exactly how they were showing partiality in the instruction, but apparently it's not important. The the problem was just that they were showing partiality in the instruction. James 2, 1 and 9 uh, reiterates this for us in the New Testament. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, I considered that there are a couple ways of showing partiality with regard to the way that we teach God's word. One is that we can either ignore or overemphasize certain truths. And I forgot to grab the quote. I've shared it before, but uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a quote that was actually borrowed from Strauch in his book that says something to the effect of somehow we've gotten hold of the idea 
that error is only that which is outrageously wrong, and yet we fail to recognize that the most dangerous person of all is the one who fails to emphasize the right things. Here's an example. Uh, There are those out there that would teach diligently on God's love and his grace and his forgiveness. But you don't hear much about sin because it's a tough, tough thing to talk to somebody about their sin, about the fact that they have rebelled against God and where they stand against, uh, before God. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, to put it simply, we can't really understand how good our God is unless we are willing to acknowledge how bad we really are and understand our need for salvation. So we can't just teach about God's love and God's grace. We have to teach about our sin. The beautiful thing is God does that through his word and he nails it. You are sinful, but I still want a relationship with you and I've paid the price so that you can have a relationship with me. It's a wonderful message, but we we can't overemphasize God's love and underemphasize our sin. Another way that we show partiality in the teaching of God's word is that often we're tempted to present our own convictions or traditions as God's truth. And instead of exegesis and going straight to God's word and pulling out of it, what is God saying here? What what really is it that God is saying? We say, well, this is what I want God's word to say, and I'm going to force it into God's word. And uh, that's called eisegesis. Uh, Matthew 15 is a good example where the Pharisees come up to Christ and say, how come you don't require the, your disciples to wash their hands before they eat? Don't you know that that's the tradition? Don't you know that that's what honors God? And um, Christ, as he normally deals with the Pharisees, is just like, you know what? You guys are knuckleheads. That's your own tradition. That's not what God's word says. And if you look back, you'll find out that not everybody was required to uh, make an ablution or to cleanse themselves before they ate. It was just the priests. But somehow through the years, that had become the tradition that they had decided to enforce. And um, uh, I'm trying to pace myself this morning, so I won't go into the details, but uh, most of you are familiar with the story that Jesus lays some smack down and says, uh, basically comes to confronting them and saying, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Calls them out. Wow. Well, I think uh, I do want to share these scriptures. The point is that God's word is adequate. God's word in and of itself is sufficient. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, and Isaiah 55:10-11 say, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout 
and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word is sufficient. For some of us, that means that we need to start taking God at his word and taking it more seriously and recognizing the authority of God's word. For others of us, it means that we need to stop trying to promote our own personal convictions and, and using God's word as our own personal billy club. God's word is sufficient. Leave it alone. The fourth way that we... Um, in effect, tell God that we hate him is to trivialize our marriages. I'll take a short break here and, and use a fun illustration because um, I can't, it's hard for me to be too serious for too long, as many of you well know. And actually, that's the point of this illustration. Um, I love multiplayer video games. I know some of you can't stand video games and can't see the point, and that's fine. I feel that way about golf. Um, <laughs> multiplayer video games, for most of you already know, but basically it means that you're all playing the same video game together, and there's an objective, and you're all trying to work together towards the same objective. Uh, it's, it's quite fun, and especially when there's very difficult objectives you're trying to accomplish in and, uh, and tackling that with one, two, or three other guys, it's a rush. It's just a lot of fun. Well, usually I can be, uh, I can be talked into uh, taking those games seriously, but sometimes I get a little bored, and, uh, and there's a particular game uh, where, this is just going to sound goofy to some of you, but take it or leave it. Take it with a grain of salt. There's a video game that we play, and basically it's four of you trying to get from point A to point B, and all these zombies are trying to attack you. So you have to watch out for each other. Watch out, watch out, they're coming oh, over there, over there, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's a, it's a very frantic game. Well, after a while, sometimes I get kind of bored, and um, so I'll start taking Molotov cocktails and just chucking them over at the other guys. They're like, oh, it's on fire, what happened, what happened? I'm just like, oh. <laughs> that was me. Um, you know, other games, you know, uh, a, a buddy of mine used to like to do this one where it was just me and him, and it was this real stealthy game, and you had to sneak up on the enemies. And uh, sometimes I'd get bored and just, he was really the one that wanted to play it, so I'd just kind of chuck a grenade in his bunker. <laughs> Whoa, somehow they got me. They threw a grenade exactly in my spot. I'm like, <laughs> well, the, the point is <clears throat> that there's an objective and everybody needs to be working towards the same objective and fully committed to the same objective to make it work. Um, marriage is the ultimate team effort. There is an objective, and if you're both not on board, it's not going to work. Um, you know what? I skipped reading the passage. Let's read scripture and see what God has to say about this. Um, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously 
and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Well, Judah had started sleeping in the bed of another god. And God says, no, you are mine. I set you apart for me. I am your God. I am your father. I am your husband, as it were. Uh, there's, there's a lot more significance to this than, than I have time to go into since we're just doing an overview, overview. But the point is that God had set apart Israel for a relationship with him not with these other nations. And he made it very clear to them, you are not to marry men or women from these other nations. And at some point, they had slacked off and decided that was okay. And God says, you think it's okay, huh? Verse 12, whoever does this, let them be cut off. Now, that might mean they need to be sent away. It could also possibly mean they need to be cut off. Um, I, I don't know to say for certain one way or the other, but the, the point is clear that this was not acceptable behavior. <clears throat> we sometimes entertain the same idea in our culture. Um, and it, it pains me when Amy and I hear of uh, close friends or family or whoever that, uh, that uh, chooses to pursue a marriage with somebody who we know does not know the Lord and does not fear God as their Lord. And uh, often I'll hear, well, it, it, isn't it just so glad that they found somebody that loves them? And I think, are you kidding? They need to be looking for somebody who fears God and loves God. If God is not number one in your marriage, good luck. I don't think it's going to last long, and it's certainly not going to be a God-honoring marriage. It's like JP mentioned last week. This is an excellent example. When you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. When you put first things first, you secure the first things, and more often than not, God brings in the second things through his grace. And I'll tell you what, marriage, that is definitely the case. Um, God has to be first in your marriage, no matter what. And if God isn't first in the lives of both the husband and wife, guaranteed you're going you're gonna to start seeing problems. Um, there's, a, um, there's more to that, but I'll, there's actually a, a, a quote from an article, but we'll get to that at the end of the next section that deals with this as well. <clears throat> However, just as a a word of admonition to our uh, unmarried folks who are out there looking, um, and by extension of this principle, if you recognize the importance of God being the center and the focus of b both relationship of the husband and wife, then you have no business pursuing romantic involvement with somebody who does not claim Christ as their Lord. You are building, uh, you're investing emotionally on a relationship with no solid foundation. 
And just like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, those winds are going to come, the rains are going to come, the realities of life are going to hit, and you're going to be left in the cold with one big mess in front of you and a wasted investment of emotions, time, and resources. Please don't go there. That's not what God wants for you. Moving on to verses 13 through 16. This is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, what reason, or for what reason? Here they're coming before God and saying, how come you aren't accepting our offerings? How come we're not enjoying your blessing in our life? And that's what they're saying. Yet, yet you say, for what reason? <clears throat> because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And if you ever wanted to really understand how God feels about divorce, here it is in verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce and he considers it to be a betrayal of your spouse to the point where he says it's as if a husband that divorces his wife is like the man who stands with his garments spattered with the blood of his murder victim. It's that uh, intense of a betrayal. Marriage represents our covenant relationship with God. I should say the relationship between Christ and his church. Divorce takes that marriage that's supposed to represent our covenant relationship with Christ and it shatters it along with the emotional, the spiritual, the mental, the relational and all other securities that are supposed to come with that relationship that God designed marriage for, that God designed the family unit for. Now, it's been said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So this puts a huge responsibility on all of us who are married. And you who are thinking about getting married and preparing to be married, listen up. Husbands, some of us aren't loving our wives in the way that God has told us to and in the way that we know we should. And wives, some of you aren't respecting your husbands in the way that you know God wants you to. And guys, this is not a, an institution, a relationship, a promise, a covenant with which we can afford to be careless. If you leave your marriage in autopilot, it's going to crash. Perhaps some of you have seen the movie Unstoppable. Amy and I just had a chance to watch that. Um, It is, uh, it tells a story of a train that got out of control and basically due to the simple carelessness of one railway worker, the... Uh, the train was left in autopilot, so to speak, 
Um, and before they knew it, a train full of thousands of gallons of fuel and carrying car after car of toxic chemicals was careening its way towards a heavily populated area. Um, just the carelessness of one worker resulted in potential disaster for many, many people. Uh, the cool thing is, um, and sorry, spoiler alert, um, there were a couple men who were willing to say, no, that is not acceptable. We cannot allow that train to crash in Stanton, Pennsylvania, which is where it was. It's, that's going to affect thousands of lives. The, the, the potential results are going to be disastrous. We will not allow that to happen. I'll leave it there so you can watch the movie if you haven't seen it. But I want you to know that's the good news. That's the good news is that this church family is committed to making sure that those trains don't derail and that we will help one another do whatever it takes to see God through this church, restore, rebuild, maintain, strengthen, and bless our marriages. And again, I say our church because practically it's our local church, but it's not, it's not us. This is what God's in the business of doing. This is how important marriage is to him. So yes, there's the aspect of looking at it and knowing that God hates divorce. That also means that God loves marriage. He loves to see happy, blessed marriages that people are investing in. It, the, the illustration of the train also brings up a, um, a, uh, another question. Who is conducting your marriage? Who's in the helm, so to speak? Uh, Dr. Bill Bright, in his article, Jesus and the Intellectual, makes the following observation. But I have observed that where the husband and wife are Christians and have a family time where they read the Bible and pray together daily, the divorce rate is radically reduced to approximately one in every thousand. That's going from about one in every two marriages to one in every thousand. A relationship with Jesus Christ makes the difference. He brings real purpose to marriage. In view of the facts, who would dare take the gamble of marriage without Christ as Lord of the life of both husband and wife? Moving on to method number five. Sometimes it's as if we tell God, I hate you by challenging his integrity. Verse 17, he says to, uh, through Malachi to Israel, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Uh, I know this resonates with me and I'm, I'm guessing it resonates with many of you that you have, especially when it hits close to home, when you have seen injustice hit, when you've seen somebody uh, falsely treated, when, you see, when you've seen them uh, unloved, uh, when you see people uh, apparently get away with acts of wickedness. Um, and I know my heart has cried out to God at times, God, why are you letting this happen? How can you let this happen? Well, I want to read... Psalm 73, 
because as we'll see the psalmist dealt with this same issue and came to a conclusion that I think is sufficient for us at least on this side of eternity I say it's sufficient regardless but it at least affords us some peace of mind and some appropriate direction Psalm 73 surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me my feet came close to stumbling my steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat they are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind therefore pride is their necklace the garment of violence covers them their eye bulges from fatness the imaginations of their heart run riot they mock and wickedly speak of oppression they speak from on high they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, in other words, if I had said, these things are right. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It is definitely tempting sometimes to look at our circumstances and say, God, how can you do this? How can you allow this to happen? And then I'm reminded of uh, Proverbs 3, 5, 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't look at your circumstances. And um, I say this uh, from personal experience and with a heavy heart because uh, my brother Ben continues to go through a very difficult situation with a, a wife that divorced him and two boys that he's been granted only visitation rights. You better believe it burdens me greatly and angers me. And I have to keep my anger before the Lord. And, and I think it, there's a, an appropriate righteous anger about it. But I also need to make sure that my heart is not hateful towards his ex-wife. But recently I was discussing with him some of the, the court proceedings and <clears throat> how he needed to pursue it 
<clears throat> first of all, I praise God for the way that he has preserved my brother's heart in all of this. Absolutely amazing. Every time I talk to my brother, I am floored at how God has preserved his heart and changed him and grown him spiritually. And the godliness that I see growing in my brother is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I've also come to understand uh, and much at my father's uh, reminder, you know what? God loves my brother and Jennifer and those two little boys far greater than I will ever love any of them. And how can I doubt that God is going to accomplish what's best for each one of them? And, and just knowing that allows me to whew, just give it over to the Lord. You know what, Lord? I, this is what I see, but I trust that what you're doing is good. I trust that you're going to use all these things for Ben's good and for the good of those boys. And the psalmist, as far as the difference between the righteous and the wicked in this life, he says, you know what? I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and it occurred to me. Eternity's coming and it's just a breath away and we know where the wicked and those who have rejected God are going. And we also know what's in store for those of us who have called on the name of the Lord for salvation. And it, that should be enough. Method six of uh, expressing hatred towards God is that we rob from God. Chapter three, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The Israelites in the in the preceding hundred years had begun slacking off in their tithes and offerings. And I want to be clear that we, we see the practical um, outworking of this issue, but the core issue was a problem with their hearts. It was a problem between them and God in their relationship with God. It was a lack of trust, a lack of recognition of their dependence, and ingratitude, I mean, you name it. And that was uh, being reflected in their, uh, in their tithes and offerings. And he says, get back with it. Do what I asked you to do. But also know this, and, and God didn't even have to say this, but he says, and test me in it. Just do it and see if I won't bless you so richly that these storehouses are going to be overflowing with, with the grain that they were supposed to be bringing. Why can't we just trust God? You know, I was, I was thinking about this. 
sometimes it's easier for me even to trust others. Um, and I, my brother Micah came to mind for no particular reason, but if my brother Micah came to me and he said, Ethan, you got to trust me on this. Can you come up with a thousand dollars? I could try. I don't really have that much cash on hand. Ethan, Ethan, Ethan. Any way you need to do it, come up with a thousand dollars. I can't tell you the details. You've got to trust me, but if you can afford to give me a thousand dollars, I will make it well worth your while. Well, I would trust my brother. I, you know, I would, I would sell some things to come up with a thousand dollars. If my brother Micah came to me and said, Ethan, just trust me, trust me, it'll be worth it. You better believe I would come up with that thousand dollars within 24 hours, in inappropriate and God honoring ways. But I would come up with $1,000 to give to my brother and say, okay, I, I don't know what's going on here, but man, Mike is pumped about this. I'm pumped about this. And here is God telling the Israelites, trust me. Just offer to me what I'm asking from you and trust me. Trust that I'm good. Trust that I'm your provider. Trust that I will bless you and that I want to bless you. And it occurred to me, Jesus says the same things in the Gospels. It's almost this, this whisper from heaven saying, guys, the stuff that you see down here, the stuff that you're chasing after, forget about it. It's garbage. It's going to burn. You can't take it with you anyways. But if you can invest this stuff in eternal things, oh, you have no idea what is in store for you? You can't begin to imagine the ways God is going to bless you. It, and it amazes me too that God, God doesn't just blindly ask us to, to give to him. It, it's something like this. He says, I want you to give to my work and support my work through your local church, through your offering, so A, you're going to see how your contribution is going to play out in the ministry of your local church and supply the needs of the saints and see God's ministry through your local church expanded. But then he also says, and hey, I'm going to provide your needs. Don't you worry about that. I've got you covered. I'm your provider. You're never going to go without. And then it seems that the third point is he says, above and beyond that, I'm going to bless you when you're faithful. God loves a cheerful giver, and he blesses them. And I'm not promising health and wealth, folks. I'm just saying that God promises to bless you however he chooses to see fit. And then above all of that, it's translating into eternal reward, rewards that we're going to enjoy for eternity. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really know what that is. I, I can't tell you exactly what's in store for us. All I know is that if God says it's worth giving up everything in this life for, man, it must be something amazing. Um, I will stop there on that point so we can end on time here, close to on time. 
Method seven is expressing contempt for your relationship with God. And um, let's see how this played out with the Israelites. Uh, Chapter three, verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And um, these verses are are closely tied to um, uh, chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 6, where we talked about challenging God's integrity. I see see that section is more challenging how God relates to us. And um, this is more us challenging the value of how we relate to God. Um, but but they're very closely tied in my mind. Um, this idea of saying, you know what, God, I don't I don't get it. What is the point of serving you and obeying you? I don't see it. I don't see the payout. I don't see the value. It's a it's a very wrong perspective. But I've been there. Uh, I think it especially hits home. Uh, for some of us, there is a particular temptation for uh, some of us who are saved in an early age. And it's tempting to look back and say, I don't get it. What, what was the point? We, and and we, we look in, around us and we see, uh, we see God's grace being poured out. We, see, we might even look at the wicked and, and say, they're prospering. I don't understand it. God wants us to know that it is, it, it is of immense value. And I just want to read a testimony for you. I thought this would be the best way. <clears throat> well, let's get the perspective. If, if you're tempted to say, you know, how would my life be any different if I wasn't saved in an early age? And if the Lord called me now, uh, how would my life be any different? And, I, and it's not just for those of us who are saved in an early age, but uh, but perhaps for all of us at some point we're tempted to to say that, especially when our, we go through difficulties and suffering. Let me read this testimony. This fellow's name is Drew Berryessa. Like many who struggle with same-sex attraction, the early years of my life were filled with pain and confusion. When I was eight years old, my parents divorced. This single event was the turning point. For the next 12 years, my life would be marked by rejection, estrangement, isolation, abuse, insecurity, and fear. Although I had accepted Christ as a child and had been raised in the church, I was unprepared for the questions and accusations against the character of God that flooded my mind after the fracturing of my family. I believed in God, but he seemed to ignore my prayers. At age 12, when my struggle with same-sex attraction began to emerge, God felt like my earthly dad who had left me and seemingly never looked back. For the next eight years, I lived in the tension of wanting to please God and remain obedient to him yet also wanting to indulge my attractions. I used anything that I could get my hands on to appease my desires, including fantasy, pornography, and eventually a gay relationship. Proverbs 27.7 says, A person who is full refuses honey, but even bitter food tastes sweet to the hungry. What I did not realize for the first half of my life was that my struggle with same-sex attraction was born out of legitimate hunger for love, affirmation, identity, and security. 
when I first began addressing my same-sex attractions, honestly and intentionally, I could not have identified what my true hunger was. I remember, I remember my first few weeks in the discipleship program at Portland Fellowship, the Exodus member ministry where God transformed my life. Exodus is a ministry that helps those struggling with same-sex attractions uh, come out of those, that lifestyle <clears throat> and honor God. I walked, I walked in thinking my only problem was my attractions, and within weeks, God began to reveal all the areas of my life that were wounded and starving. When I look back at my life now, I can see the ways that God was trying to give me good things to satisfy my hunger, but because of the accusations that I had in my heart against him, I could not receive them. It was during a teaching at Portland Fellowship titled The Marred Image of the Father that God confronted a belief I held that he had ignored me and abandoned me when I was a child, and therefore I could not trust him. I felt the Holy Spirit gently showing me that if I wanted the Lord to lead me into healing and transformation, I had to learn to trust him. I was reminded of Mark 8:34 through 36 where Christ states that if anyone wants to be his follower, he must pick up his cross daily and follow him, and that those who try to hold on to their lives would lose, but whoever would lose their lives for Christ's sake would truly live. Accepting this call to trust God with my life and to lose my life for his sake became one of the most significant turning points in my journey. From that moment on, I purposed to trust God unreservedly believing that even though I would lose my life, the life I would gain would be well worth the struggle and risk. Here it is. I can truly say that the life the Lord has given me in exchange for my trust and surrender has been worth it. Twelve years ago, I could not have imagined the life that God had in exchange for the life I was holding on to. This year marks two anniversaries for me, seven years of marriage and seven years of full-time ministry. God has not only given me a wonderful wife and two amazing daughters, but has also allowed me to spend my life giving back the same hope that I have received, directing Portland Fellowship's live-in program, The Upper Room. I'm so grateful that the Lord invited me to trust him. It's good to keep those stories in mind, lest we be tempted to think that living for the Lord is of little value. Well, in verses 4, 1 through 6, Malachi wraps up his message. And he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Have you ever seen uh, sawdust thrown through a fire? So that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And at this point, I was reminded, remember, that's the challenge to us, remember. In Revelation, John says to the church at Ephesus, uh, Christ is speaking through John saying, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. 
And here's the challenge to us today. Because I know that we've I know that we've dealt with some very difficult and intimate topics this morning. Remember what God has told us to do. And if there if if any of these things that we talked about this morning, if the Spirit is speaking you to you this morning and saying, Hey, get this right. Get this right. God's ready. God's saying, return to me and I will return to you. If you're ready, all he wants is that we acknowledge our sin and just call a spade a spade and say, you know what, God? This isn't right. This is sin. We need to repent of that sin and say, you know what, God? I I agree with you. This is sin. I'm turning away from it. I'm confessing it to you as sin. And then just obey. Follow in obedience. Trust the Lord and what he wants for you. He is ready to do some powerful things. Just, just like the life of, uh, of this fellow Drew Berryessa. Who else can change a life like that but God himself? Amazing. So as we wrap up here, the question is... Uh, like the like the Israelites that Malachi was speaking to, are we just going through the motions or are we demonstrating our love to God through obedience? As 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Father, I want to ask you that if some seeds were planted this morning in our hearts of things that we need to change and get right with you, Father, please let us not kick them out of the dirt or ignore them or let them fall by the wayside. But may we spend some time today speaking to you about these things and getting right with you so that we can enjoy the wonderful blessings that you have in store for us. Thank you for being such a wonderful father, Father. And thank you for sending your only son and bringing us into a relationship with you through the blood that was shed on our behalf. In your son's name, amen.